This is Inside Geneva. I'm your host, Imogen Folks, and this is a Swiss Info production. In today's programme... For years, the sight of a plane delivering British food and medicine has brought hope to millions. The behaviour and influence that has resulted from those 500 years of colonisation remains. If we were to think of aid as a form of reparation, as a form of social justice for historical and continuing harm. At the airport 20 minutes drive away, aid and supplies are arriving from around the world. You want me to pay reparations. I wasn't born in the 19th century. My background is not in empire. Welcome to Inside Geneva. I'm Imogen Folks, and today we've got a really interesting topic for you. It's being discussed here in Geneva and across the global humanitarian community, decolonizing aid. So are these just the latest trendy buzzwords, or are they a sign that humanitarian aid needs a serious rethink? Here to discuss this, we've got two amazing experts, Dr. Lata Narayanaswamy, Associate Professor of the Politics of Global Development at Leeds University, and Tamam Aludat, 20 years with the medical charity Doctors Without Borders, now Managing Director of the Global Health Centre at Geneva's Graduate Institute. And, of course, a discussion like this wouldn't be complete without our resident analyst, Daniel Warner. Now, Tamam and Latter, you're both already deep into this subject. You've written academic articles about it. But for the rest of us, I think we need a basic introduction. I'll start with you, Latter. What does decolonizing aid actually mean to you? Thanks, Imogen. Um, it, you're right, and it's. I'm glad to hear you describe it as something that's sort of important and relevant to everyone, because I think one of the things that's a challenge is to make the question of coloniality. How has our shared history of empire, European empire in particular, so we're thinking about the last sort of 500-odd years, how has that affected us now? And one of the sort of events, the tragic events that has brought this to the to the fore, really, to give some context, is the Black Lives Matters protest that took place in around the world in the summer of 2020. And this, for those listeners that may not remember, uh, was in response to what has now been judged to be the murder of George Floyd by a police officer in the United States. And it brought into the mainstream these long understood historical association between what can only be described as the racist policing of black and brown bodies and seeing that as one of the harmful legacies of European empire. So when we talk about decolonizing, certainly for me, the key thing is about embracing a more diversified way of understanding our world. And that includes, it necessitates an engagement with our shared colonial past. In order for us to move forward, as you said, all of these challenges that we face, we have to contend with that past in order for us to work out what we do about our shared future. Tam, I want about you. Does that chime with you, Lata's definition? Yes, I, I really like the idea that it is an, an engagement in our shared colonial past, because this 
gives us rather than an immediate animosity, it gives us a potential to look at it collectively rather than as a conflict or a friction. I come from 20 years of practicing medicine in crises, and I come from having enthusiastically embraced the global system of humanitarianism, of global health, of you know, my younger self thought of it as this is the way for us to achieve like an equitable future. This is moving people who are worse off to be better off. Foreign aid has long been a vital part of U.S. foreign policy. It takes on hunger and it improves health. It 20 years later, what I've hit repeatedly is that the system not only is failing at improving people's lives in a way that leads towards a sustained collective equality some point in the future. It insists in reproducing the conditions of that inequality. So the more we do, the less likely we are to get out of it better off. Think about COVID now, for example. In my mind, this is a very good example. The early rhetoric of COVID was that this is an equalizer. You know, this is finally the event that makes everybody equal. No one will escape it. And then immediately after, it collapsed into protectionism, into uh, self-preservation in the most base way, like our national border and our electoral future as Western politicians is more important than anything else, while continuing to pay lip service to, you know, providing for the rest of the world. The promise of equitable access is at serious risk. The behavior and influence that has resulted from those 500 years of colonization remains. Let's bring Danny in there. You, you had your hand up because I wanted to ask you, I mean, obviously, Danny, you are the middle class, middle aged white guy in this debate. Tamam has a point, doesn't it? If you look at a 19th century map of empire, you could almost superimpose it on a map of vaccinated and unvaccinated colonizers colonized. No, no, I'm, I'm not arguing with the map. Uh, and intellectually, I understand and agree with what's been said. I have several problems or questions that I would raise. Number one, the concept of colonizing or decolonizing to me is a political statement. And which I'm sitting here in Geneva and the words neutrality, independent, uh, dealing with aid and health would come to my mind immediately. So what is the relationship between the political sense of colonization and the neutral impartial sense of aid or health. Uh, it seems to me that both of you have made aid and health political. Uh, and sitting here from Geneva, if I listen to the Red Cross or other organizations, uh, they should be impartial and neutral. Can I just put that, but maybe framed slightly differently to both of you? Because I do take Danny's point. I think a lot of people see this debate as highly politicized, should we reframe it as more of a historic and and institutional? So I think, I, I suppose what's interesting about this is the separation of things like health and aid from the notion of politics. 
these are politicized ideas and they exist within a political discourse that is underpinned by historical ideologies that frame how we exist with each other. And I think one of the things about even the language of aid, for instance, is almost by definition, Tom, you use the word continuity, and I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, one of the things that we have to sort of acknowledge about what the system that we sort of label as aid is in fact, a, it is absolutely an extension of the colonial system. We had the redeployment of colonial era officers. Those colonial era officers that were still in country were just redeployed and given a new name called technical development officers. In the sort of 50s, these are the same people that went on to shape senior posts at the IMF and the World Bank. Those same people also became leaders in the UN specialist agencies, founding large INGOs, consultancy firms. So the architecture of this system that we called aid is actually rooted in what Tamam's absolutely rightly called the sort of continuity of the colonial legacy, right? So the language of aid suggests a sort of charity. It suggests something benevolent about our engagement. Rich countries are giving away more in aid than at any other time on record. America gave the most money away. But if we were to think of aid as a form of reparation, as a form of social justice for historical and continuing harm, then all of a sudden we can actually shift that lens. And it is political because the problem with something like aid is it can be withdrawn. There is a responsibility. It's not charity. It's actually we need a reparative social justice that then thinks about the ways in which our resources now are being shared. And it's highly unequal. So if we were to reimagine aid, and actually interrogate that language, then it would give us a new way to think about how we share our resources. And again, that 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 notion of the collective, if there's anything that's shown us that we're all in this together, it's it's COVID. Tamam, what Lata's talking about though is a is a real deconstruction of how we do humanitarian aid and I guess to a certain extent global health, which is your specialization. Is there not something to be said for the efforts that have gone on over years? I mean, even when I was a young journalist and I was reporting from former Yugoslavia, there was constant talk about localization of aid and development, that the local community had to be brought in, had to be controlled by them. Is that not a way to work towards this decolonization or is that a, is that a red herring? No, it's not. If we believe it then it would be a brilliant thing. But as you mentioned, since Yugoslavia, there has been talk about localization. And then we've had the 2015 World Humanitarian Summit, which has put localization as a main item on the agenda. And where are we now? We are being told that international organization will be the gatekeepers for the money that goes towards local organizations so we can localize. So there's there's a, a fundamental lack of trust in local organizations. We want to localize, but we don't trust them enough. And you will hear stuff about the pre-assumed corruption. You know, what if they are corrupt? All that isn't new. All that is is a recycled colonial behavior. And it's almost comical. My often 
reference is George Orwell's Burmese days. And here you have the European club, which is very much like the expat house in a humanitarian organization. It's exclusive to some people and and others who work in the same place are included. It co-opts people of color, the colonized, like Dr. Veraswamy, the Indian doctor in that novel, who has no purpose in life other than to be included in the European club. So the problem with the rhetoric of colonization, the colonial argument is is vicious in the sense of colonization built on capitalism that exploited people at home and people abroad and, and pit them against each other. Colonialism in, is in blaming China for, for the, the climate crisis or India or countries that have not benefited from polluting the world for 300 years. It's in pretending that we, the West, are you know, helping the world by dumping near-expired vaccines when we have failed to use them after having hoarded them and prevented people from You're not talking them. about Switzerland, are you there, Tamam? <laughs> I'm talking, you know, multiple countries. And now, you know, the good guys say, oh, we need to pay for planes to dump them somewhere where they can be used. That's the good guy now. It, it all is a system that is so embedded in our collective memory. And the funny thing is we end up feeling animosity towards each other when we are just like equally exploited by, by different tentacles of the same monster. Danny, I know you're... Yeah, I mean, I'm supposed to play the role here of the guilty, middle-aged, white, northern male. Uh, So here we go. Here we go. What's the problem Monday morning at 8 o'clock? What are we supposed to do? And and Lada and Tamman, it seems to me there are two different vocabularies here. On the one hand, you want me to pay reparations. And on the other hand, there's a notion of enlightened self-interest. If everyone has the COVID vaccine, it's better for me. But this notion of reparations, uh, you know, I wasn't born in the 19th century. My background is not in empire. Is that the best way to get me to change my behavior? And what do you want me to do Monday morning at eight o'clock that I'm not doing now? That to me is the most important thing. That's a good question, Lata, and we should we should perhaps remind our listeners that Lata has written an article where she does suggest that we should talk about aid to the former colonies, the developing world. I hesitate to use the wrong terminology, but we should see it as reparations rather than here's a gift from us to you. It's why there are growing calls for France to recognise and apologise for its violent colonisation of millions of people in Africa and Asia. I think it's time we stopped our cringing embarrassment about our history, about our traditions and about our culture. And we stopped this general bout of self-recrimination and wetness. So what do you want uh, Danny to do on Monday morning? How's he going to change things? I mean, I think Daniel's questions are actually really important because in a way, part of the challenge around this discourse of decolonizing is making it accessible. So one of the reasons to frame it in this sort of collective way is to think about how all of us and our lives and our and our and the structures that we live in and our choices are shaped by that shared history. So, you know, on Monday morning, it'd be really interesting and important for us to then reflect on the different ways that we're able to challenge the, the, the power structures that underpin how we live. So here I'm thinking in particular about 
racism as a sort of one very insidious sort of continuation from the colonial project. And and what's interesting about colonialism, for instance, is that the vast majority of the world including working class populations across the world. There were some things that, that went well, costs of some goods went down, but actually for lots and lots of people, like if you think about the Industrial Revolution in Britain, that wasn't really a great time for the working class. There were no health and safety rules. You know, there's no minimum wage. You know, there's no children in school. We wouldn't want to reproduce that. That That is not a set of conditions that we can look back on collectively and be proud of. You know, when you break that down about the, you know, when you think about the wealth creation and you broke that down sort of per capita, those numbers start to look very much less impressive because it was done on the back of exploited labor. And what you're getting is the reproduction of those conditions, but in highly racialized ways that offer that continuity from coloniality. So for me, this is about a dialogue that sort of says, well, no, actually, we have shared purpose here in thinking about decoloniality. This is not an oppositional agenda, but also we can reflect on the relative privilege that, that this system then gives us. So you know, what do you do on Monday morning? Well, you know, can we think then about the privilege that we have and then work out how we challenge that? So I think there's, there's, there's things that we can do, dialogues we can have where we bring people into that conversation for sure. Lata, one of the things that struck me there was that you're talking a bit about, and Taman has too, a very classic political operation, divide and rule, creating the other. And yet in many people who want to go into aid and development work, young Europeans, young Americans, they would say this is precisely what they don't like, that they are part of their attraction to working in aid and development is the fact that we are all in it together. And on the toughest days of all, you can count on us. We are in this together. And yet the reason we are having this programme and discussing this subject is Although they think like that, it's not quite working. Tamam, would you like to answer that? Yeah. Imagine the irony of taking the most well-meaning, selfless people and turning them into cogs in a machine that they've tried to oppose in the first place. This is what happens. This is where I think a differentiation that is extremely important needs to happen between individuals and structures and institutions. Because the last thing you'd want in a conversation like this, which happens almost always and needs to be opposed consciously, is the calling out of the structural problems, the coloniality, the racism, the so on, calling out the problems with it, its inheritance of racism and coloniality, translates in people's minds naturally into you're calling me a racist. That isn't at all the point. That's actually counter to the point because that eliminates the possibility of white people, European, North Americans, from being part of the conversation. It, it loses its point. So to start with, Daniel, you know, you don't need to wait until Monday morning. You're already here on a Thursday morning <laughs> and you are participating in a conversation that is at least on the very shallow surface of it, counter to your own interest. And that is already a huge step. Secondly, I think young people of any description should go and be part of humanitarianism, be part of global health, conscious of 
the role that they can be co-opted to play and the opportunity, as small as it still is, of them countering that role and doing something different. So I'll give you a few examples. I was asked by often white European people who have been sort of decentered by this conversation. So should I leave? And my answer is always no, you shouldn't. You know, if you leave, then we leave the whole system to people who have zero self-reflection. And the second thing is, what should I do? Go there and disrupt. Go there and hand over the power that is given to you to other people. Do it subtly. Do it without risking your well-being. Do it without risking retaliation. I don't think we're looking for martyrs here. We're looking for people who are going to consciously and self-critically challenge the system in small ways, break bits of that construct that is, is has been unbreakable. And the other thing is, if we reach a stage where we agree that we are collectively exploited and collectively in need of of a hope of emancipation of one sort or the other, then the first thing to do is to start very consciously taking out this trend to vilify each other, because this is the inheritance of colonialism and of capitalism, is for us to start fighting each other rather than fighting the uh, source of exploitation. Roads must fall, is their demand. Take it down. Cecil Rhodes, one of the most controversial figures of Britain's imperial age. You know, give each other a bit of slack. Try to understand the reason we are on the other side and have a civilised conversation. Lata, I saw you had your hand up. I just want to bring Danny in quickly because Danny did ask what he should do on Monday morning. Um, what is your response to the answers you got? Well, I mean, I, I, I'm one of the things that fascinates me in our discussion is this notion of conversation and especially to localize. Uh, we're dealing here with an asymmetric position of power. I'm the white, middle-aged, thank you, Imogen, uh, male, uh, and I'm going now to somewhere in Africa. What does it mean to localize? First of all, should I be there? And secondly, what should I do? That's my Monday morning question. I actually have a follow-up question to that because as I was saying before we actually started recording, one of the things, and this is, I'm coming with the boring journalists um, question, where's your practical example? So Tamam, you talked about people who, who have doubts about what they're doing in humanitarian or global health work. They're asking you, should they leave? And you say no, but you go and you you change things. What would change then? What would change for the World Food Programme in Yemen. I'll give you a very practical example. I've been sent once as an expatriate to a project that has been standing for 10 years and told, you know what, we have a gap in like the manager of that massive hospital. Go give us a plan for next year. We need an annual plan. So I went there. I gathered the senior staff. It is in a sub-Saharan African country. We sat together and we discussed what should be done next year and then uh, showed them the plan and sent it off to Geneva. We want to put the hospital in a location so that it's easy for people to access. Most of the refugees will be coming by foot or they'll be carried by stretcher. And so for this reason... And I asked one of my colleagues, could you ask them if they like the process? Like just... And the answer astonished me, shouldn't have surprised me. They've never known that we had annual plans. They've never been asked about one. So the headquarter trusted me to come out and within 72 hours produce a document that will decide the expenditure of several million dollars. 
but never asked anyone of the people who have been day in, day out in that hospital. This is a simple act that doesn't require upending the system. Go to places like Yemen or so on. Don't tell them what to do. Ask them what they want to do and then actually do it. It's as simple as that. And the possibility of it going you know, badly is, I would bet you, not much higher than the possibility of an expat making a, a bad judgment. I think that example is is shocking and not surprising in equal measure. And But I did want to come back because, Daniel, you raised that question earlier about, you know, I didn't cause this, you know, I... I'm not the colonizer. And so, you know, you're taking, why should I pay reparations? And and I think it's, it's, I think it's an important question for us in terms of the way that these issues are framed, that we do need a response to. Because if, if you're saying, if you, if what you see, if the way that this is portrayed to you as average voter, that there is a fixed pot of resources, and now I'm having to share that pot of resources with people when I'm actually struggling, with people to whom I did no harm, if that's the way we frame it, then that starts to that starts to be very problematic. I think COP26 is the example. North America and Europe historically, anywhere between 75 to 80% of historical emissions are kind of our fault. The US is responsible for 25% of the world's historical emissions, emitting 400 billion tons mostly in the 20th century. In second place is the EU at 22%. So this shouldn't be about creating a fund to help the global south or, you know, Tamam, you talked about China. There is no question that China and India emissions are growing quite rapidly, but there are also countries, China especially, that are partly their carbon emissions are because they're producing stuff for us to consume. Let's have that conversation and then let's work out, is this about helping the global south? No. To sort out climate crisis, the global north needs to pay for it because we kind of, it's kind of our fault. So let's take responsibility. And believe me, it is affordable. We just need the political will to find the resources. And it just doesn't exist because of the nature of the kind of the national discussions that sort of see climate crisis also as a zero-sum game. Well, if you're not going to do it, well, then I'm not going to do it either. So that is a very practical thing. And those negotiations are going on as we record this podcast. I knew this was going to be a very wide-ranging and in-depth discussion. And already looking at the clock, I see we've overrun by eight minutes, but that's fine. It's a podcast. We can be flexible. However, I think we will have to, for our closing remarks, return to the specific topic, which was about decolonizing humanitarian aid and health. So, Danny, I'm going to come to you first for your closing remarks. From somebody who is always, on all these programs, such a good analyst, what do you think about this topic? Where would you go with it? Were you talking to one of the big humanitarian agencies in Geneva, for example? I think the language that we're using is, is difficult and, and can put people off. I'm often interviewed as a Democrat. Uh, and when I say, do you mean capital D or small d, I always say small d. Uh, because when Taman talks about localizing or this conversation, it's basically about democracy with a small d. That is being inclusive. And it seems to me if the language is better 
talking about democracy than talking about reparations, decolonization. I think it will ring better with more people. But that's my only uh, comment. It seems to me the decolonization in terms of aid and health is highly problematic. Tamam, what do you think? Or or do you think it's more that people actually just, they need to face up and accept this word? So think about medicine. There was a time before anesthesia where, you know, knocking someone with a stick on their head would have been doing them a favor so they wouldn't feel the pain of the surgery. We don't do that anymore. It used to be fine in its historical context. It wasn't really, but it was the only way. And it stopped being fine. There are things in humanitarianism and in global health that may have been seen as okay and that aren't anymore. So... There are things that are happening, and many of the humanitarian and global health people will contend that things are changing. There are more people that are different in positions that they wouldn't have access to before and so on. And I appreciate that, but that's why I have my job, because I probably wouldn't have had it 30 years ago. But let's talk about democracy. My problem with that is democracy, with a big or a small d, has been squeezed into being electoral democracy inside national borders. That doesn't work. You know, the liberal democracy that is based on on nationalism and capitalism may have helped to a certain extent some countries. It hasn't helped the poor, it hasn't helped the marginalized, and it hasn't helped poorer countries. I meant global democracy, Tamad. Thank then, you. Then, then that is that is something. But you know what? Call it an elephant, call it a donkey, as long as it does the same thing. The same thing being giving voice and agency and autonomy to people who lack it today not even political choice, but the basic ability to control their destinies, their health, and their next meal. If that becomes more democratic, and I don't believe it can without a conscientious dismantling of the system that prevents and has prevented that for hundreds of years, then we're fine. We're on the same page, Daniel. Lata? Final words to you. I think in a way that that is an important point, and it's something that we risk losing if we're not careful what we mean by decolonizing. I don't think anybody is thinking, okay, well, we just stop. I think one of my concerns in all of this is A, that decolonizing becomes a kind of buzzword. It becomes co-opted. And equally that point about, well, do we like that word or not? I mean, I think the policing of that kind of language, because some people have taken it up and see it as a challenge. Well, it is challenging. It is it is asking us to rethink the way that we live and how we exist with each other. So that language is, is deliberate because it's asking us to think about those issues through the lens of this shared colonial past. So for me personally, I think that word is really valuable. I think, though, it kind of goes back to, mom, to the point that you were making, which I thought was, you know, your example. So when I think about the ways in which the way we engage in these spaces, you know, who gets to be the expert? So an immediate challenge to the way that we work that wouldn't stop these activities, but would actually realign them in recognition of those historical power imbalances could be, that's great. Let's provide the resources, not because of some sort of northern benevolence, but because we have a shared responsibility for each other. And if it's climate crisis, well, because we kind of caused it, we have a responsibility to help those people affected by it. How do we work out who do we talk to? How do we talk about these issues with them? How do we think about notions of accountability 
with those people. And this is not about looking backwards in order to just sort of, you know, having some sort of shared guilt about our colonial past. We can't go back, but we can and should hold each other accountable for the consequences of that set of activities that we're calling empire and how they affect the way we live today. We can and should hold each other responsible for responding to the consequences of that now. So can we think about colleagues in the global south, in that hospital, Tamam, that you visited? What if we reimagined them as the experts? What would our dialogue look like? How would we think about resource allocation with them? What would planning look like if they led that conversation? And also on this business of localization, what if they weren't just local experts? What if actually we saw them as global experts, people that we could learn from? This is about decolonizing, not as an outcome, not as a tick box, but as a process where we're always thinking and we're rethinking and we're reimagining and we're challenging ourselves to look at the world differently. So even if we end up with a system where we are sharing these resources, where we should be helping each other, humanitarian crisis, we absolutely should be doing that. But there's no question. So it's not that we should stop it, but it might change how we do it. That, I think, is a, is a good starting point. And I'm not saying there's an end point, because I think it's a process. It's not an outcome. Okay. I thought this conversation would fly by, and indeed it has. We've come to the end of this edition of Inside Geneva. To my guests, Lata Narayanaswamy, Tamam Aludat, and as ever, our analyst, Daniel Warner. Thanks to all of you for such an insightful conversation, and thanks to our listeners for listening. A reminder, you've been listening to Inside Geneva, a Swiss Info production. You can email us on insidegeneva at swissinfo.ch and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Let us know what you think of the program and check out our previous episodes from a long, hard look at the United Nations, now it's 75, to an account of 10 years of war in Syria to the history of how the international treaties on landmines and on enforced disappearances came about. I'm Imogen Folks. Thank you for listening and do join us again on Inside Geneva. Discover science and innovation in Switzerland with the Swiss Connection podcast. In the current series, we visit CERN and explore what they're up to next in their quest to solve the mysteries of the universe. We uncover groundbreaking discoveries in a Roman archaeological site and get the first glimpse of an exciting supersonic plane powered by hydrogen. From the tiniest particles to the vastness of space, satisfy your scientific curiosity by listening to the Swiss Connection podcast for a mind-expanding experience with Swiss Info. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure to follow or subscribe to get your latest episode on time. Mm -hmm.